Say, let me test your uh, trivia knowledge, 1980 movies. Uh, this would be Rocky Three. Rocky's opponent in this movie was Clubber Lang, played by Mr. T. Now, in the course of this movie, uh, the character of Clubber Lang is interviewed, and he's asked a question about the upcoming fight with Rocky. And he says, and the interviewer said, what's your prediction for this fight? And Clubber Lang answered with one word. So if you know what that one word was, whisper it to your seatmate or your spouse or to yourself, whisper it to God. But so you get extra credit. One word answer. What's your prediction for this fight? What was the word? Pain. Pain was the answer. And pain is the theme of our message today. We were just singing that song. I feel like anything I say now is going to be anticlimactic to a song like that. That was so powerful. But in your weeping and your rejoicing, he is with you. We're going to talk a little bit about the weeping side of that today. The New York Post recently analyzed over 9 billion health insurance claims to discover the strangest ways that people have gotten hurt. People have gotten hurt. Over 17,000 people walked into a wall. 25,000 people walked into furniture. 1,700 people were struck by a cow. Now, they didn't strike the cow. They were struck by a cow. 300 were bitten by a pig. 10,000, over 10,000 were accidentally bitten by another person. Accidentally, presumably not wearing a mask. There's a lot of ways to get hurt, a lot of ways to get hurt in this life. There's a lot of ways to get hurt. Now, we're in a sermon series on Esther, and it's the gospel in Esther. And today, we're going to be looking at some of the, the pain that was in Esther's life. Now, next week, we'll get to her big moment of truth for such a time as this. That's going to be next week. But before we get there, Esther had to go through the school of suffering, and she was being shaped and molded by God and learning some things that are going to prepare her for her moment of truth. And, and pain can serve the same purpose in our lives. So let's just look at three areas of pain and acknowledge them. It's good to know we're not alone when we experience some of these things. All right, number one is the pain of marital dysfunction. The pain of marital dysfunction. Now, the verse here is chapter 2, Esther chapter 2, verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time. <clears throat> I wonder if you knew that. I've, I've read through the Bible many, 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 many times, read the book of Esther, and never realized there was this second assembling of virgins. So when we left, last left Esther, as you recall, King Xerxes had a beauty contest, so to speak, to replace Vashti, who had been deposed. And he brought before him every single night for a period of three years, there was a new virgin that was auditioning to be the, the new queen. And he went through about a thousand virgins who wound up in his harem as one of his concubines before he got to Esther, and Esther was selected and chosen. And so she becomes the new queen, she's married to the king, and in between verse 18 and verse 19, there's a time gap. I and mean, you wouldn't necessarily know that. It's not obvious, but you compare some of the time clues in the book of Esther. And between the time when Esther became queen and married the king, and this right here, the second assembling of the vir virgins is about five years. Now, why was this? There are various theories that are put forth by the commentators as to why we have the assembling of the virgins for a second time. The one that has the least problems and makes the most sense is that this king simply wanted to. The king simply wanted to. He's a sex addict and he's addicted to variety. And so he assembles virgins, not to replace Esther just because he wants to. Of course, this is a source of pain 
and a, and a marriage, certainly for Esther. I mean, I'm sure she went into this marriage with her eyes wide open. You know, she knows she's marrying a pagan Persian queen who already had a thousand concubines. She kind of knows what she's getting into. Maybe she's an idealist. Maybe she thought, well, I can change him. She wouldn't be the first you know, person to think that when they're going into a marriage. But nevertheless, this had to be painful. Later on in the narrative, she'll admit, I haven't even been in the king's presence for 30 days. 30 days. You know, they weren't even together. A lot of isolation, a lot of pain. This happens sometimes in marriages. Now I know marriage is a great blessing. There are many pleasures and benefits and spiritual advantages to marriage. And by the way, I'm, I'm not, you know, not going to leave out singles here, widowed, divorced, singles, whatever. We're going to have an application there. I'm just saying, I know marriage can be a great blessing. I'm not saying anything different, but we all also are acknowledging marriage can be a source of pain. Marriage can be challenging. Marriage can be difficult. Timothy Keller in his book on marriage says, some people are really, really the wrong person to marry. Everyone else is still naturally incompatible. So everybody has to deal with incompatibility. Now, somebody's going to send me an email. This almost always happens after the message. Steve, you know, not us. I married my soulmate. He completes me. She completes me. We've been married 40 years, never have an argument. You know, it's all good. Well, you know, God bless you. God bless you. You should go on a speaking tour and make a million dollars. But bear with me for just a minute here while I talk to everyone else in the world. Now, people today don't literally necessarily have a harem of concubines like King Xerxes did, but figuratively, maybe so. Maybe a lot more of that going on than we might think. Right in here is a harem. Listen to what none other than C.S. Lewis had to say about pornography. He said, it takes an appetite which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself and it sends him back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem works against his ever getting out and uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible and subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions, which no woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored. No demand is made on his unselfishness. No restriction imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. The main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we were all born in. But this danger is that of coming to love the prison. The average uh, young person is exposed to pornography age 11, which happens to be the average age that most children get a smartphone. In 2013, there was attempted uh, to be a study on this in Canada where they were looking at young men aged 20, 20 and under who'd been exposed to pornography. They wanted a control group, so they compare that to those who had not been exposed. They abandoned that study because they could not find anyone under 20 who had not been exposed to pornography. Now, having said all that, this is not a message on pornography. I'm not going to go into that. I'm not going to talk about how to overcome it. It can be overcome with God, you know, I'm not. But that's not the point. The point is, our culture has been hypersexualized, and this is the water that we swim in. And many folks in their marriages are going to be dealing with this kind of dysfunction and this kind of baggage. 
And if not that particular kind, not sexual dysfunction, then other kinds of baggage and difficulties that become the source of pain sometimes in marriage. You think about the marriages in the Bible. So many marriages we read about in the Bible were troubled, difficult marriages, incompatible marriages. Uh, Abraham and Sarah had their challenges. Moses and Zipporah, very difficult marriage. They were separated for a long time because she did not agree with his, his ministry. David and Micah, David, one of David's wives was Micah. She was the daughter of Saul and there lots of difficulty in that marriage. Solomon and his 700 wives and a thousand concubines. There were some challenges and some difficulties there. But as Ben Franklin says, these things that hurt instruct. These things that hurt instruct. One thing that Esther had to learn and that would prepare her for her moment of truth that was coming up was that her ultimate companion was not going to be her husband. Her ultimate relationship, I'm talking about the ultimate relationship, was not with her husband or any human being. Her ultimate relationship had to be with God. This is true for all of us, even the healthiest of marriages. Our ultimate companion and our ultimate relationship cannot be a spouse. This is why singles, those who are not married, need to know this as well. Sometimes they think, oh, if I can just get married, then I'll be completed, or then I'll, it'll solve my loneliness problem. No, we have to solve that problem. Realize the resolution, that marriage is not going to solve the loneliness problem. It's God who resolves that problem. He is our ultimate companion and our ultimate relationship. Pain can teach us that. All right, so that's one area of the three that we're talking about this morning. The second one is the pain of unfairness. The pain of unfairness. I want to just sim- summarize Esther chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, what happens here. Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. Uh, it's not a literal gate. That's terminology used in the Old Testament for s- sort of an official government complex. That means Mordecai had an office of some kind. So while he's serving this office, he comes into the knowledge of an assassination plot against King Xerxes. Two of the eunuchs were going to assassinate him, and so he tells Esther. Esther tells the king, making sure to give Mordecai the credit. There's an investigation. These two eunuchs are executed, and Mordecai's good deed is recorded in the king's book of good deeds. So... You attentive readers, what we would maybe expect to read after these events is that Mordecai was rewarded. He's rewarded for what he did. Maybe some remuneration. Maybe he gets a well-deserved promotion. That would be appropriate. Well, in the next verses, we do read about a promotion. But ironically, it's not Mordecai. In Esther chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, after these events that we just talked about, King Xerxes honored Haman. The Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. That's not fair. That's not just. It's Mordecai who's doing the work. It's Mordecai who saves the king. Haman is the one who gets promoted. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've had a little unfairness or injustice in your life. Maybe you've been passed over for a promotion or a raise or a recognition of some kind. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14. 
There was once a small city with only a few people, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, built huge siege works against it. And there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom, but nobody remembered that poor man. It's unjust. It's unfair. There's a lot of that in life. And not just being neglected. Have you ever experienced this where you worked hard, you saved the day, saved the business, saved the church, saved the relationship. Not only were you neglected, but somebody else snuck in there and grabbed the glory. Got the reward, the award, the recognition, the raise. Chelsea Mitchell. I had a picture of Chelsea. This is in our culture. It's kind of a recent, easy example of this. Chelsea Mitchell was once the fastest high school girl runner in Connecticut. You might have read about this recently in the news. When the Connecticut Athletic Conference allowed trans girls to compete in girls' sports, and that's a biological male who's transitioned, when the conference allowed that, Mitchell began to lose, lose races to biological males. She lost four women's state championships, four. Two all New England awards, she lost them, and numerous other spots on the podium to male, male runners. She says this in a recent interview, what that tells me is that I'm not good enough, and that no matter how hard I work, I'm unlikely to succeed because I'm a woman. It robs girls of the chance to race in front of college scouts and to compete for the scholarships that come with college recruitment. She goes on to say, there's no telling how many opportunities she's lost because of that unfairness, because of that injustice. Now, that's just one example. That's probably never happened to anybody here. You know, none of us are female athletes competing against trans. However, we have our own version of that. We've experienced injustice. And somebody else is coming and take took what belonged to us. And we know how much that hurts. And here's one level of pain above that. Not just when it happens to us, when it happens to somebody we love. Now, that was Esther's situation. This happened to Mordecai. Mordecai was her de facto father. And she saw the injustice that he experienced. That hurts. That's why so many of these parents at the Little League baseball games get out there and beat up on the referees. Because they thought it should have been a ball instead of a strike. You know, when you see an injustice happen to somebody you love... It hurts, and, and there is pain. So what, what do we learn from that? What does Chelsea learn? One of the things that Chelsea, I hope, learns is something Eric Little said. Remember Chariots of Fire? Eric Little said, when I run, I run for the pleasure of God. And one thing we want to realize, through the pain of injustice and unfairness that we experience in life, and there's a lot of it. We're talking about ultimates here, like our ultimate relationship is God. Our ultimate reward comes from God. Whether we get the recognition of the glory or the reward to which we think we're entitled in this life or not, ultimately it's God who rewards. And Jesus said this on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He said, your father who sees what is done in secret, your father sees it all, will reward you. This was going to be important to Esther in her moment of truth for such a time as this to understand that her reward had to come from God and not from men. It's important to each one of us as well. These things that hurt instruct. Our pain and suffering, we're in that school of suffering that it's got to move us closer and closer to God instead of the other direction. All right, one more. The pain of persecution. 
Finally here, the pain of persecution. Esther chapter 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And here's the plan that he devised. He called together the diviners, the magicians, the sorcerers. He said, let's cast lots and pick a day in a certain month. The lots were kind of like dice. So they rolled the dice, snake eyes. They hit on the 12th month. So this is around the first month. So 11 months in the future, Haman wants to set a day and pass a law where it will be legal to attack all the Jews in the empire of Persia, to attack them, despoil them, take what belongs to them, and to kill them. That's his plan. So now that he has a plan, he goes to the king. Uh, Esther chapter 3, verse 8. And Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. Of course, that was a lie. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I'll give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. And that's a bribe. Now, as we've seen before, and we're going to see throughout this account, this King Xerxes is very malleable. He doesn't think through the consequences. There's no supporting evidence of these accusations. He just hands over carte blanche, a blank check to Haman to do what he wants to do. Messengers go out throughout the kingdom announcing the day when they're going to be able to attack and kill the Jews. This is the pain of persecution. It's not only going to be physical when it happens 11 months from now. Think about the emotional stress that these people are under knowing what's going to happen to them these few months into the future. And there are parallels to this in the gospel account. Jesus was attacked by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the council, combined with the Romans, tried, convicted, scourged, crucified, and then afterwards, after that, they weren't content with that. They, just as Haman was not content just with killing Mordecai, he wants to go after Mordecai's people. Satan wants to go after Jesus' disciples, his family, the church. In the book, Persecuted, the Global Assault on Christians, the author writes, from 54 to 304 AD, these are in the first few decades of the early church, there were 10 separate periods of persecution within the Roman Empire. Now, in the last 100 years of our history, he writes, the number of Christians persecuted and killed for their faith exceeds the total of the previous 19 centuries. And of course, we have persecution of Christians active, hard persecution happening in countries around the world. Here, more like soft persecution but we still experience physical pain. And sometimes, because we're Christians, you know, we're not exempt from that, we still experience emotional and psychological pain, just like everybody else does. Christians aren't exempt from that. And sometimes, a little more, because we are Christians, and we may wonder sometimes, where is God? In the book of Revelation, you have that scene where those who had been martyred for their faith are sitting beneath the throne, and they ask God, how long, Revelation 6.10, how long, sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And God says, hold on and wait just a little bit longer. Where is God? Well, God is with us. 
He is with us when we suffer. We know that because the cross tells us so. God has entered into our suffering. He suffers with us and he suffers for us. And on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, let me tell you one more story here. We'll end with this. This is a true story of Steve Saint. And I'm going to read to you here, but just bear with me just a couple of minutes. As a child, Steve Saint thought of Timbuktu as a made-up name for the ends of the earth. But in 1986, while traveling in Western Africa for Missionary Aviation Fellowship, he's a pilot, he found himself stranded in the real Timbuktu. And Steve decided to rent a truck and travel elsewhere. Men armed with scimitars and knives watched him suspiciously. And after he failed to find a truck, Steve's thoughts ran to his father, Nate Saint, a former missionary in Ecuador. When Steve was only five years old, natives speared to death his dad and four other missionaries. But now, 30 years later, Steve found himself questioning his father's death. He says, I couldn't help but think the murders were capricious, just an accident of bad timing. So Steve asked for directions to a church. Some children led him to a tiny mud brick house. A dark-skinned man in flowing robes approached and introduced himself as Noah Yatara. And Steve asked, how did you become a Christian? And Noah said when he was a child, a missionary gave him a Bible and promised him an ink pen if he memorized some verses. He memorized them. He believed the verses. He learned and he came to Christ. Noah's parents then threw him out of his house, pulled him out of school. Noah's mother even tried to poison him with food, but he ate the food and suffered no ill effects. And Steve asked Noah, why is your faith so important to you that you're willing to give up everything, even your life? Noah replied, well, I know God loves me and then I'll live with him forever. And Steve said, well, where did your courage come from? And Noah answered, the missionary gave me books about Christians who had suffered for their faith. And my favorite was about five young men who risked their lives to take God's good news to Stone Age Indians in the jungles of South America. The book said they let themselves be speared to death, even though they had guns and could have killed their attackers. Steve Saint was stunned at these words. And he answered, one of those men was my father. And now Noah felt stunned. Your father? Steve assured Noah of the truth of the story, and then Noah assured Steve that God had used his father's death many years later to help a young Muslim-turned-Christian to hold on to his faith. And Steve realized that if God could plan the death of his own son, he could also use the death of Steve's dad, Nate Saint, to accomplish his sovereign purpose, including the reaching of one young Muslim for Christ and orchestrating this God-ordained meeting of two men at the ends of the earth in Timbuktu. Now, we may not always, all of us here, get an aha moment like that, where it's revealed to us how God has been orchestrating the painful events in our life for that certain purpose. Maybe not in this life, on this earth, but undoubtedly a lot of us are going to get a moment like that, maybe in the next life, on the new earth. And one thing about persecution, and this was so important to Esther in her moment of truth, one thing about persecution and, and the real possibility of death by persecution is the lesson that our ultimate life is not this life here on this earth. A life the Bible describes as short and full of trouble. That's not our ultimate life. Our ultimate life is with God and 
in God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, if I was to sit down for five minutes with anyone in this room and they were willing to share with me the truth of their lives, we would be talking about pain. We would talk about burdens. We would talk about suffering that people go through. We pray today through Esther. You can remind us we are not alone. Everyone goes through this, whether in relationships or through injustice, maybe through persecution even. We pray, God, you will use that school of suffering to draw us closer to you, deeper in faith, rather than letting that push us away. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.